Bibles, take them and turn to the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. And on your sermon outline, which is in your program, you will see, as one person said before the service, oh, a puzzle. We get to fill in the blanks. And as you heard earlier, we read together the entire 17th chapter of John's Gospel. What is commonly called the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And you know, the New Testament picks up on this designation. And right now I want to read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that tells us now about the high priestly work of Jesus. You'll find that on the back of your sermon outline. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So far the reading of God's word. And as Martin said, this is the, the, the grand finale, as it were, of our study through this high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I, I told Nina this week, I feel like it's icing on the cake. We've taken all the ingredients and we've put them together. We've baked it and we've layered it. And today, as we survey the whole thing, we apply the icing and we savor and apply these marvelous truths that God has pressed home to us. My friends, we are not alone. If you ever feel alone, you are not alone. You have one who names your name to the Father, one who is your high priest at the right hand of God, who, it says in Hebrews 4, has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God. So often we describe the ministry of Jesus as that which he did on the cross for us, right? And oh, how central is the atoning work of Jesus Christ for us. But his priestly work did not end on the cross, did it? Because a priest does more than offer sacrifices. But a priest engages in prayer, and that prayer consists of praise to God. That's what a faithful priest does. He praises and gives glory to God, and then he calls down blessing on the people. And this prayer, the entirety of John 17, uh, does precisely those two things. You see in your outline, number one, letter A. Jesus anticipates and prays for his glorification. You see this in verses 1 through 5. And it's marvelous. This first section is simply Jesus on the night he was betrayed, realizing that though he is about to experience betrayal and brutality and abandonment and death on the wretched cross, and though he is anticipating that the wrath of God will fall on him for the sins of his people. Nonetheless, he knows that on the other side, death will not hold him, and he will rise from the dead, he will ascend into heaven to his coronation, and he will be glorified with the glory 
he had before the foundation of the earth. And he can see it and he knows it. And any faithful priest desires the glory of God. And Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, he desires the glory of his Father and the glory which is his own. And the day has come now, though you cannot hear it, when heaven, according to Revelation 5, when heaven is crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. But before he goes, then in verses 6 through 26, he does what a good priest should do, and he prays for blessing on his people. And so, letter B, Jesus prays for his disciples, and as we've seen this summer, you are his person of interest. That simply means he is paying attention to you. That's what the police do when, when there's a suspect. They become a person of interest. Or that's what a political party does when they spy someone in the community who might be a good candidate for political office. They become a person of interest. Or if a church is looking for a, a new pastor, they, they look at different people and they say, oh, well, that one's a person of interest, someone you're going to pay attention to. And that's what we're told. We are. And he prays. Jesus says in John 17, verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he expands it in verse 20, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So who is it that he's praying for? On that day, over 2,000 years ago, he's still praying for us, we who through the chain reaction of the fulfillment of the Great Commission around the world and through the ages. <laughs> he was praying for us. You are his person of interest. He is interested in you. He is invested in you. He prays for you. Hebrews 7, verse 25. It says, He is able to save completely those who come to the Father through him, because he ever lives to intercede. That's a fancy word for pray. He ever lives to intercede for them. My friends, what we have learned these months as we leave John 17, I hope you take this with you, is that we have a Savior who has a perpetual and continual ministry at the right hand of the Father in prayer. How wonderful that is, because like I said, do you sometimes feel alone? You are not alone. Do you sometimes ever wonder if anybody else mentions your name to God the Father besides you? And there is, there is one at the right hand of the Father and when Satan comes, as the Bible says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And when the devil comes and he presents a sinner like me to the Father and he says, look at that John Yenshko. He claims to be a Christian, but look at how selfish he is. 
Look at how careless he was today. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. What happens? We are told that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And in 1 John 2, 2, we are told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, for we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he steps in, and he presents us to the Father, and he presents our feeble prayers and our requests, and he cleans them up, and he brings them like incense to the, incense to the Father. That is his work. The work on the cross, perpetually, continually effective, but the work at the right hand of the Father in prayer for you and me. You got it? That's point number one. That is what we have celebrated for three months. I am praying for them. I am praying for those who believe in me through their word. And point number two, when God answers this prayer, what happens? Now, you can take more notes than just filling in the blanks, but I'll help you fill in the blanks here in the outline. And there is so much that we could say. Again, I could go through four more hours of it with you, but the things, I I just get to give you the things that have gripped me, okay? Indulge me on this. These are the things that have gripped my soul for these past 11 weeks. And the first thing is the theme of glory. As God answers this prayer, we are told that you experience the weight of glory. And you know that is the title of C.S. Lewis's great essay, The Weight of Glory. I know some of you read that at the Families with Young Children's group this week. The word glory, kabod in Hebrew, doxa in Greek, it means heavy. The weightiness of God the magnificence, the brilliance, the immensity of God. That's his glory. And as I just told you, Jesus is fixated on the Father's glory, and he's fixated on his own glory. But guess what else in verse 10 he says? He says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you. This is a good-looking group here in this room. But did you know that Jesus Christ prays and affirms that he is glorified in you? And that is his will. And so when this prayer is answered, Your life is lived for the glory of God. And that should not surprise you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, asks what? Do you know that? We've said it many times. What is the chief end of man? And the answer given to the church is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. My friends, how do you do this? Well, you do it in worship, first of all. You do it in worship. And this is why the Psalms say again and again, Psalm 34, verse 3, Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. 
and why on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings, you're not home reading the New York Times or watching Face the Nation or Sports Center. You're, you're, you've turned it off. You've put that down. And what have you come to do? You heard the call. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And I did say, and I'll say it again, when your children say, Mom, Dad, do we have to go to church? What does the good parents say? They say, no, we don't have to go to church. We get to go to church. It is our highest privilege to come and unite with the saints and the angels and to lift up the name of the Lord, the name that is above every name, and to give him praise to the glory of God the Father. <laughs> you don't have to come here. You get to come and join with us and sing and speak his praises. And then your life is lived in the choices you make and the words you speak. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, Paul says. So today, will you commit to this? Maybe some of us for the first time. Will you commit? Lord, I want you to get glory from my life. Answer this prayer, and he will be glorified in me. The next thing Jesus makes very clear, and that I want you to believe in letter B, is that you have eternal life. Eternal life. And this is so wonderful. He says in verse 2, you can follow along there. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. My friends, Christianity is not a basic self-improvement course. You know, you can get those online, how to win friends and influence people. Christianity is not some sweetener that you just add to, the, to reduce the bitter taste of your life. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verse 4, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. And hear, listen, listen, and hear the claim of Jesus. Do you hear it echo in your soul? John eleven twenty five. 25, as Jesus cries out, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And after Jesus says that, he turns and he says, you know the next line? Do you believe this? I wonder if you had been there that day. And he looked you in the eye and he said, Do you believe this? Do you? Eternal life. And then Jesus does something marvelous in verse 3. He goes and defines eternal life for us. And he says, and this is eternal life. He gives it this radical definition that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And all I want to tell you here in this icing on the cake, and this is icing on the cake, is that 
I used to think eternal life had to do with duration of time. Tick, 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 tick. It's a long time. And Jesus says, essentially, eternal life is not about time. It is about a personal relationship with God. And when you come from death to life, you are in Christ Jesus and you have a personal relationship with God as your heavenly Father and Christ as your elder brother and the Holy Spirit living inside of you. It's knowing the Lord. You know, we sing a song in this church. The song goes like this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're my rest. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. You know, I met someone who said, I don't like that song that much. It's just too syrupy for me. And I smiled and I said, well, people have different tastes in music. And boy, in our church, there are different tastes in music. But you know what I thought? I thought to myself, if you're going to pick a song to criticize of a contemporary nature, don't pick that one. Because knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. You are my all. You are my rest. You are my joy. You are my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Let that be the cry of our hearts as he answers this prayer and gives us the life that is truly life. Because there's nothing like knowing Jesus. And as we move on, Jesus then prays about several things for the church, for us together. And in letter C, he tells us, church, you are one. Listen to the echo, verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Then verse 23, that they may be one even as we are one. Do you sense a pattern here? Do you sense a priority here in this prayer? What's he talking about? He's talking about unity. My friends, when the body of Christ loves each other and is at peace with each other, when the body of Christ has that, we call it relational unity, where we work out our problems, because there will be problems, when we work out our difficulties, but because the love of Christ is in our hearts and because we have been forgiven, we love others and we forgive others. When the body of Christ is synchronized, working together in, in relational unity and, remember my word, purposeful unity, when we are agreed in the purposes that God has given us, there's nothing like it in the witness to the world. You know, Mahatma Gandhi, he said, I like your Christ... It's your Christians I don't like. Your Christians are not like your Christ. Ouch! Ouch! What was he saying? He's saying, oh, church, there's so often discord and judgmentalism and unforgiveness and bitterness and, and brokenness. And instead, instead, Jesus has something so better for us that we would be one. And North Shore Community Church, we have enjoyed that oneness over at least this past decade in such marvelous ways. I thank God for it all the time. 
We are one, united in Christ and in purpose. Paul says in Philippians 2, 2, being one and in spirit and purpose. Paul writes in Romans 15, 5 and 6, may God give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart, there it is, you may glorify, there it is again, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you are one. And the next thing he promises the church is security. Security. That you are protected and kept according to verse 12 and verse 15. Listen to this. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. And this is so interesting, because Jesus kept the disciples, and now he's about to do the handoff back to the Heavenly Father, and in verse 11, he cries out, Holy Father, keep them in your name. You see. You know what this means, my friends? This word is a word of constant surveillance and protection and care, like the military escort that goes with the king as he heads back to his palace. This is the word for guarding and keeping. And though we face danger in this world and tribulation, and I look around this room, and I know that some of us are going through deep waters, and I know that some of us are facing fiery trials, and I know that there is heartache, and there is suffering, and there is loss, in many of our lives. But my friends, Jesus promises not to deliver us from tribulation, but to deliver us through the tribulation to the other side. And we read in Isaiah 43, 1 and 2, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Why not? For I am with you, says the Lord. And even more, because the Lord himself took the judgment of the waters that fell upon him and took the fire as he were, as it were, the burnt offering, the sacrifice for our sins, because Christ took that judgment on us. We are spared. And now he is with us. I will keep you. I will guard you to the end. And you know what else he promises the church, letter E? He describes the church and he says, you are sent. And do you see that in verse 18? Let this ring in your ears. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And we learn that, wow, was Jesus sent into this world. Wow, he came as the great prophet. He came as the great priest. And he came as the king of kings into this world. And he executed his offices perfectly, right? There is no one like Jesus Christ. But now that he has gone to heaven, do you know that the New Testament assigns the duties of those offices to the church? To us. Now, I don't know what your job description is at work, but I'm, I hope you have one. 
If you're a mom at home, it's everything. But whatever your job description is, in your job description at church, while you're not the great prophet and the high priest and the king of kings, you are the messenger of the gospel. You are the minister of the gospel. You are the manager of the gifts and graces of the gospel that he has given you, and it is your calling to fulfill these things. Even as Jesus was sent into the world, so you go, and you exhibit the welcoming heart of God to people you meet, because Jesus said, listen, he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come, and you're his voice. You're his voice that says, come, come to me, come to Jesus. You minister his grace. You're the messenger of the gospel. And you bless as you, as you manage those very gifts and the gospel that he's given you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And letter F, he says, your destiny is heaven. And look at verse 24. Never forget verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. And your destiny is heaven. And while I think of many applications of this for us, I will just name one. It is this. May this be true of us at the North Shore Community Church, that Christians know how to die well. So interesting. When John Wesley, the, the great church planter, was interviewed at a, at, by a newspaper reporter, and he said, why do your churches grow like they grow? And Wesley didn't say, well, we have a rockin' band with great music. And he didn't say, well, we've just got the best small groups, even though they did have the best small groups. You know what Wesley told the newspaper reporter? He said, I think the reason our churches grow is because our people know how to die well. That's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? But it's a beautiful statement. Because Jesus teaches us here that when we die, we enter into his presence and behold his glory. And we know what happens when you see the unveiled glory of Christ. You are changed. You are transfigured. You are delivered from the very presence of sin and you are made new. Oh, my friends. <laughs> we, remember, we are not taught much about heaven. Let's see, pearly gates, streets of gold, big feasts. But, but, but we are not taught much about heaven. Paul says... I saw it, and it's unspeakable, right? Paul said, things unutterable. But we do know this. We will be in the presence of Jesus, that they may be with me where I am, and they will see my glory. And so if someone says to you, do you know if you're going to heaven you have all kinds of ways to answer that. A Christian has many kinds of answers to that. But one answer you can get from our passage here today in John chapter 17 is, well, you know, friend, I'm a disciple of Jesus. But if it just depended on my performance, I'm not so sure what would happen. But I'll tell you this. 
my Savior prayed for me. And he prayed that I would be with him where he is in his glory. And he says that I've been given to him by the Father. And God answers his prayer. And I'm trusting him because in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, and my song. He prayed for you, that you would be with him in glory. And the final point to be applied is in verse 26. That you are loved. You are loved. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And something's extraordinary from the beginning of this prayer to the end is revealed about God, about the nature of the Trinity. What do we learn about the nature of the Trinity in this prayer? That they love each other. Did you catch that? Jesus says, glorify me because of the love you had for me. My friends, God loves within himself. We are told in 1 John 4 twice, God is love. God is love. And there is an intimacy within, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that is so beautiful and so perfect. And the result of all this as the prayer builds to a climax that Jesus says that the love you have for me may be in them. Here you have the cascade of the love, the Father for the Son, overflowing to you and to you and to you and to us. And Christ takes up residence in us. And the love of the Father for the Son is on you. But why would God love me? I don't know. But I do know he loves his Son. And that love is the power that motivated him to come to this world. And so you have Galatians 2.20 and Ephesians 5.29 and 1 John uh, 4, 8 through 10 and, and Romans 5, 8. It says he loved the church and gave himself for her. Paul says he loved me and gave himself for me. Paul writes, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And John says in 1 John 4, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, my friends, if you understand the cross of Jesus Christ, then you can never doubt that he loves you because he loved you and gave himself for you. And John says, for we know and rely on the love God has for us. Yes, you might be bankrupt, have no money in your pocket, but God loves you. You might have cancer, but God loves you. 
You might have failure and shame in your life, but Christian, God loves you. And this is the icing on the cake, you see. Because you ask, will these prayers be answered? This long 17th chapter with so many petitions in it. Will these prayers be answered? And Jesus went to the cross to cement the answer of these prayers. And Jesus rose from the dead to guarantee the answers of these prayers. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father to affirm and assure the answer of these prayers for you and for me. This is what we have learned together these three months. And my friends, glorify him in your life. Believe that you have eternal life. Be assured that he guards you and he will keep you to the end. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Live as his messenger, minister, manager sent into this world. Prepare yourself to die well when your day comes. Be ready and eager to meet your master in heaven and know that he loves you. For he has made an everlasting covenant of love that cannot be broken. He loves you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for our priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ, how we thank you for the one who's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we cast ourselves upon you. And we ask you humbly that you would answer all these prayers in our lives and in our church family together. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And we take our stand in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's rise together and worship him.